The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There might be some human rights violations, but we get security and we get safety. And it sounds like when presented with that trade-off, a majority of Salvadorans have said, yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it and, and, and we'll like it. And, you know, that's has, that has all sorts of implications, um, certainly for democracy and for human rights. But as, as far as I can tell, again, and acknowledging that our access to data and information is really limited, but as far as I can tell, based on these sort of surveys, that seems to be what's going on. I'm Quinta Jurassic, a senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 9th, 2023. Since March 2022, El Salvador has been under a state of exception, as its president, Nayib Bukele, seeks to crack down on the country's powerful gangs. Bukele, who once described himself on Twitter as the world's coolest dictator, has engaged in a prolonged attack on El Salvador's democratic institutions. And the crackdown has resulted in a range of human rights abuses. At the same time, Bukele really does seem to have been successful in curbing gang violence, and his popularity is sky high. To understand the situation in El Salvador, I spoke with Manuel Melendez Sanchez, a PhD candidate in political science at Harvard University, who has written about Bukele on lawfare. Manuel and I discussed why Bukele's crackdown on the gangs seems to be working, why it may fall apart in the long term, and what Bukele's rise means for democracy in El Salvador and around the world. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 9th. El Salvador's president cracks down on gangs and democracy. El Salvador has had a chaotic year. Uh, there's been a, a massive spike of violence in the spring of 2022. And then there was a dramatic and extremely effective, but in other ways, very troubling crackdown on gangs by President Nayib Bukele. Can you give us an overview of what's been happening? Yeah. So as you said, uh, about a year ago in March of 2022, El Salvador's criminal groups, street gangs known as Maras, they went on a sudden and very violent killing spree. In its aftermath, Nayib Bukele, the Salvadoran president, and his allies declared a state of emergency, which basically gave the government widespread powers to carry out mass arrests and to imprison those suspected of being gang members. Since then, so in the 12 months since, El Salvador has conducted a massive number of arrests, uh, nearing 70,000. This is in a country of 7 million people, which means that about one in every 100 Salvadorans has been uh, is currently behind bars. The sort of headline development in the past five or six months is that as far as we can tell, this crackdown has succeeded in defeating these massive violent criminal groups, at least for now. So let's talk a little bit about the gangs and what kind of role they have played in El Salvador until this recent crackdown. How is it that they became so powerful in El Salvador such that the country got to this point? And, you know, what what's kind of the everyday person's interaction with them? Mm -hmm. Sure. So the gangs have a long history, but sort of the 
the modern history of these groups really starts in the 1990s. So this is a decade when El Salvador is coming out of a long civil war. That war had created thousands upon thousands of refugees. And after the end of the war, many of these uh, refugees started returning, not always out of their own volition. Uh, thousands of them were uh, forcibly returned from the United States. And what this created, if you think about it, is you have this war-torn country that is still recovering, a fairly weak government, a fairly weak state, and suddenly you have this massive influx of sort of young men who are returning home, often for the first time since they were toddlers. And this population, as well as you know, people who had been in El Salvador, who had been displaced by war internally, who had suffered from the war, they basically become a place where these gangs, these street gangs begin to recruit their members. And so what happens in the 90s is that these groups that used to be very small, very neighborhood-based, they begin to recruit more members and they begin to grow. The sort of second turning point happens in the early 2000s. At this point, the, these groups are starting to become a problem. They're starting to become a little bit more violent. Uh, politicians are starting to worry. And so they institute the first of many crackdowns. What happens is that this backfires. The government begins rounding up these mostly young men who were members of these gangs, and they begin to throw them in prisons. Now, interestingly, what happens is that although these people have been captured from across the country, they meet each other in these prisons. They begin to form networks. They begin to organize within the prisons. And so suddenly, what had been a number of still relatively small local criminal groups, they form into these national organizations that have the power to coordinate and have the power to really wield quite a lot of violence and influence. So coming out of that process uh, and fast forwarding a little bit, what El Salvador ends up with is basically three large, you know, we call them street gangs, really they're, they're criminal organizations. And these are the, the Mara Salvatrucha or MS-13, which I think American listeners will be quite familiar with, and uh, two factions of the Barrio 18 gang, the Revolucionarios and the Sureños. So in terms of the everyday life of, of sort of everyday Salvadorans, these gangs become a very big deal. In particular, these gangs grow to exercise authority and control over entire neighborhoods. And so what that means is that if the neighborhood you're living in is controlled by one of these gangs, they can restrict basically anything you do. You know, if you wanna open a small business, they will charge you uh, quote unquote protection taxes. In some cases, if you want to enter and leave the gang turf, they will you know, ask for ID, for example, or they might simply not let you enter um, rival gang turf. And above all, they become very violent. So they use violence to settle scores. They use violence to intimidate. They use violence to, uh, they use violence to exercise this control. So for a long time, really starting you know, around 2010, maybe a little earlier, for thousands of Salvadorans, these gangs were really sort of the ultimate authority, right? It wasn't the state, it wasn't the police, it wasn't the military, it wasn't politicians. It was these street gangs. And this is sort of the, the situation that Nayib Bukele, the president, sort of inherits and encounters when he gets elected in 2019. Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, it sounds like what you're describing is really... And collapse may be too strong, but an existential crisis for the Salvadorian state. And so far as, you know, traditionally, one of the ways that we describe a state is the entity that has a, a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. And what you're describing is a environment where there isn't a monopoly on the use of force and, and gangs are able to kind of, you know, control people's lives and regulate them in the way that we typically think of, of governments doing. Is that fair? I think that's fair. And, you know, not only that, but as time goes on and as the state is actually able to become a little bit more capable and they start to you know, try to exercise 
that power to try to control the gangs and, and take back some of this some of this power and control, it ends up backfiring. It ends up making the gangs stronger and more organized. But yeah, I think that's a fair characterization, especially during the 1990s, right? So during those early years, right after the Civil War ends in 1992, when the gangs really sort of start to uh, start to develop. And so what is it exactly that Bukele has done over the past year to crack down on the gangs? Right. So the really the biggest part of, his, of this crackdown strategy has been conducting mass arrests. Actually, I should pause here to say that for reasons we'll probably get into, a lot of what's going on here is really shrouded in secrecy. And sort of by design, we there isn't really a lot of transparency around, around sort of data. But as far as we can tell, over the past 12 months, the government has conducted about 70,000 arrests. That has been possible for a couple of reasons. The biggest being that during this state of emergency, which now has been ongoing for almost 13 months, the state of emergency basically suspends a whole host of constitutional rights and allows uh, the police and the military to conduct these arrests. This has had many effects. One is that it has resulted in a lot of these gang members ending up behind bars. And that's a, that's a massive blow to these organizations. Another aspect of Bukele's policy is, is that it's, it's, it's changed conviction guidelines for crime-related crimes, sorry, for uh, gang-related crimes. And it's also, they've also lowered the age of criminal responsibility. And so what that means is that it's not only easier than ever before for the Salvadoran government to arrest people, it's also a lot easier for them to keep them behind bars for longer than before. So you you mentioned that there's been a real secrecy and a lack of transparency here. Talk a little bit more about how that's played into all of this. Yeah, so I, I think to, to really answer that question, you have to understand that this president, Nayib Bukele, is a little bit of a PR genius. And so he, he is by far the most popular president in Latin America, arguably the most popular president in the world. Um, and there are many reasons for that. One reason is that he is a master at essentially hiding the ugly bits of policies and promoting the popular or the appealing bits, bits of policy. And so in this case, for example, what that means is you know, we don't really have access to many court files. We don't really have access to information about what's happening inside of prisons. We don't really have uh, statistics on, well, exactly how many people have been arrested here. And so that lack of information then allows the government to turn around and basically cherry pick what's being presented. Right? So if you were to scroll through Nayib Bukele's Twitter account or through the Twitter accounts of any number of Salvadoran government agencies, you'll see exclusively pictures of people who look very scary and very dangerous being held behind bars. You'll uh, see graphs and charts that show that there are basically zero homicides and zero crimes in the country. And so that ability to manage the image of this policy is really important because this crackdown can only be sustained for as long as it's been sustained if it remains popular. So this, this, this idea of very carefully managing the information that's being filtered out, not only to Salvadorans, but to the international community has been really important in terms of sustaining, sustaining this, this crackdown policy, which I think is important to emphasize Crackdowns against criminal groups are fairly common in Latin America. This is, as far as I know, by almost any reasonable measure, this is the most intensive and uh, getting close to the longest crackdown the region has seen, certainly in the past 20 or 30 years, against criminal organizations. And one reason why I think it's been so sustainable is because of the way its image has been managed. And that, in turn, 
relies on basically blocking off access to information. So I want to go back to the mechanics of the crackdown, its popularity, and the really troubling human rights implications. But before we do that, I want to make sure that we uh, talk a little bit about Bukele himself, because as you say, you know, he is really the figure at the center of this, and his, uh, let's call it, unique communication style has really shaped how people see and understand it. So just to start off, who is Bukele? You know, there's there's been a lot of critiques that he's moved El Salvador toward authoritarianism. What has his presidency been like so far? Sure. So Nayib Bukele is elected in 2019. And the first thing to know about him is that he is the first president from outside of El Salvador's two major parties to be elected in over 20 years. So he frames himself as an anti-establishment candidate. He sounds and talks like a populist. And he's really able to position himself as sort of the antidote to a system that many Salvadorans saw as having failed them and as being very resistant to change. It helped that Bukele is very young. Um, At the time of his election, he was either 38 or 39. And as you mentioned, it also helped that he has a a very unique and really very youthful communication strategy. So social media is his his go-to. Twitter is how he communicates with the world and with actually the people who work for him. Uh, He's known for wearing uh, backwards baseball caps, uh, hating ties. He posts memes, chimes in on popular culture. Uh, He tags and retweets Elon Musk quite frequently. And so I think this sort of useful persona that he's able to communicate really reinforces this this sort of idea he's selling that, oh, I'm, 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 I'm not like this old system that's failed everyone. I truly am different. And Salvadorans love that. They respond to that. They elect them with uh, 52% of the vote, which may not sound like that much. But remember, this is this is essentially a third-party candidate. And the runner-up has, ends up with 32% of the vote. So Bukele beats the runner-up by 20 percentage points. Now, from the time he's elected, I think it's, it's easiest to sort of think about Bukele's presidency so far in two stages. So when Bukele first gets elected in 2019, he doesn't have control of Congress. And so Congress is still in the hands of the opposition. And for those first two years, basically Bukele isn't able to accomplish much by way of policy. So there aren't really any blockbuster policy changes like we'll see later. But what happens is that he basically enters in this near constant conflict with the other branches of the state, uh, with the courts, but especially with uh, the Congress, with the Legislative Assembly. And there's this sort of famous episode in February of 2020 when he marches into the Congress surrounded by the military. And he sits at the chair of at the chair that is generally reserved for the president of Congress. And he sort of says words to the extent of, you know, I wonder if I should just shut you guys down right now, but I'm going to pray for a moment and, and see what happens. And so he does, you know, this is all being televised and he, he closes his eyes and he, he, he apparently prays for, for, for a few minutes. And then he opens his eyes and he says, well, you know what? It's your lucky day because uh, God has asked me for patience. So uh, I give you one week to, to see the light and to, uh, and to start supporting, supporting what I want to do. And he leaves. This sort of becomes emblematic of, of those first two years of his presidency. Uh, sort of constant conflict, constant concerns that he's, he's angling for some sort of power grab. Eventually, we sort of reach the second chapter of the Bukele presidency, where he is basically able to sweep midterm elections. And he ends up with a supermajority in the legislature. And he also ends up with a majority of local governance. 
And within hours of the new legislators being sworn in, he fires El Salvador's highest court, he fires the attorney general, and he packs both of those institutions with his loyalists. And so what that means is that by May 2021, Bukele has suddenly gone from being a very popular president uh, with no support in the other branches of government to being a very popular president who now essentially controls all three branches of government. And this is when we start to see him roll out these sort of blockbuster policies. Uh, one of the most famous is the adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender, many listeners will be familiar with. Uh, this happened in September of 2021. And, and, and then really this, this sort of crackdown has become his, his, his signature policy. So that's, so that's kind of a, an abridged version of, of where Bukele came from and sort of what his, what his presidency has been like so far. Yeah, and there's also uh, recently he sort of secured a Supreme Court ruling that allowed him to run for re-election in 2024, despite the fact that that had previously been unconstitutional under the Salvadorian constitution. I will say that I was on a bus in DC the other day and I saw a guy wearing a Bukele 2024 hat. So uh, make of that what you will. <laughs> but I mean, that that suggests to me that there's, you know, there's a certain amount of control he has over the Supreme Court as well. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I, I think that's totally fair. As you mentioned, the, the, the Supreme Court that he, you know, essentially put in power uh, ruled that he could run for re-election. This happened in September of 2021, so about four months after after Bukele fired the old court. I think it would be fair to say that at this point in time, uh, Bukele has either co-opted, undermined, or shackled basically every major institution that was designed to hold the Salvadoran presidency accountable. So this is this is many things. This is blatantly anti-democratic. But it also gives him a lot of power, and that has played a crucial role now during this crackdown. So let's talk about the the PR aspect of this a little bit. Um, as you mentioned, Bukele often tweets in English, and a lot of his comments seem directed toward you know an international audience um, as well as or perhaps instead of his own constituents. So I I was looking at his Twitter this morning, and on April sixteenth, he tweeted, uh, "Strong men create good times." Um, at one point, he changed his Twitter bio to read uh, coolest dictator in the world. Um, so how how should we understand his approach to communications, not only as, you know, a, a way of communicating with people within El Salvador, but also around the world and particularly, you know, an American English speaking audience? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's there's a lot that we can say, as you mentioned, there's a lot that we can say about how his communication style impacts the way Salvadorans feel about him. But even putting all of that to the side, uh, it, it's very clearly also uh, kind of an exercise in, in international relations. I, I think the, the, the place to start is to remember that uh, we're talking about a country that is both relatively small and very interconnected. Right? So this is a country of just under 7 million people, an area about this that of the state of Massachusetts, but a huge chunk of its population, estimates vary wildly on this, um, but anywhere around you know, 40% of Salvadorans actually live abroad. They don't live in El Salvador. And many of them uh, live in the United States. This is also a country that's dollarized. And so the, the fates of, of El Salvador and the United States are, are uh, intricately linked. So I think Bukele has recognized from very early on that being able to manage his relationship with the rest of the world, and especially with the United States, was going to be extremely important. Now, if, if we remember that he is an anti-establishment leader, he, he is, I think, genuinely incredibly skeptical of, of you know, international organizations and, and many governments, certainly the Biden administration. I think he sees Twitter as a way of bypassing you know, what, what some of my call the, the, the institutions of globalization and speaking directly to the people, right? Speaking directly to you know, Salvadoran immigrants 
who are outside speaking directly to, you know, opinion makers and leaders in, in opposition parties, such as the Republican Party in the U.S. And overall, what he's been able to do really is to frame himself as a head of state that's very modern, very forward-looking, very hip, very active. And for lack of a better word, I think people sort of look at his Twitter fit and feed and they think, hey, this guy is really cool. And that's what in sort of international relations we might call self-power, right? People sort of looking at Bukele and thinking either, hey, I I kind of want to be him or, hey, I kind of want to have a president or a leader like him. And that has been incredibly effective for his standing and his reputation internationally, uh, certainly across Latin America, certainly in the U.S. and, and beyond. Yeah, I mean, the way you describe his his Twitter use as a way of kind of cutting through institutions and speaking directly to people, it I don't want to fall into the trap of comparing everyone to Donald Trump, but it does sound a lot like Donald Trump. And I, I wonder how you think about Bukele in the context of this kind of broader populist authoritarian movement that we've seen around the world recently. Does he sort of fit into that? Yeah, I think so. And that's funny that you bring up Donald Trump. I remember, you know, at some point reading the headline, Donald Trump is the Twitter president. And I remember thinking, oh, just you, just a way to meet this guy. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, certainly I think Bukele is part of this wave of populist anti-establishment leaders. I, I think what sets him apart is it's, it's, it's Donald Trump in terms of, hey, let's, let's use Twitter to cut through these institutions, to cut through the noise, to, to reach people directly. But he's young and he's cool and he gets it, right? This is sort of his native environment, right? He understands memes, he understands trends, he understands hashtags, he understands what goes viral, and he has a whole team of people who also understand this. And so it's a little bit as if, you know, there are many leaders out there who try to use social media uh, more or less in this way. I think Bukele is a, is a case of the tools and, and sort of the personal qualities of the man using them are really sort of a match made in heaven. And they really do complement each other very well. Now, what is going to be really interesting moving forward is, are we going to start seeing other leaders actually learn from Bukele? And already in pretty much every Latin American country from Mexico to Argentina, you can find leaders in these places. In some cases, people who are running for president, in some cases, important party leaders who have, especially in the past few months, started to say, hey, look, this guy Bukele, he's great. He's the role model. He's, he's, He's the person we should follow. And so you know, over the next year, maybe a couple of years, we might start to see Bukele as being sort of less as, as a symptom or another instant, instance of this wave of, of anti-establishment populists, and actually almost more of a contributor, right? more of a cause, more of an inspiration uh, for future leaders. So that's definitely something to keep in mind. It seems like he's also become kind of a source of inspiration uh, for American politicians and, and right-wing commentators. So Senator Marco Rubio, a Republican of Florida, has spoken uh, with great admiration of, of Bukele and the gang crackdown. You see uh, figures like Tucker Carlson and Charlie Kirk talking about how great Bukele is. I'm curious what you make of of the love for him within the, uh, the U.S. right. Right. You're totally right. And... Uh... I would sort of say this comes down to three things. Let's start with kind of the the more obvious ones. So the first thing is, this is a president whose approval rating never seems to dip under 80%. That is incredible. That is uh, almost unprecedented. Sometimes you'll see uh, presidents or prime ministers reach those approval ratings maybe for a week or a month or maybe a couple of months usually in the aftermath of some sort of uh, event that rallies people. But this is a man who's been able to maintain 80% approval rating since at least 2019. And so I think that alone would make almost any politician in the world look at Bukele and go, 
What does this guy have? How can we get some of it? How can we become more like him and be closer to him? So that's number one. But number two, and especially for the Republican Party, I think there's what I would call a clear kind of ideological affinity between especially the sort of right flank of the Republican Party and Bukele. So we were just talking about social media. Uh, consider sort of three hashtags that we might associate with, with kind of the way, again, the right wing of the Republican Party thinks these days, right? It's like hashtag make America great again, hashtag America first, and hashtag blue lives matter. Those three ideas, those three hashtags are in the Salvadoran context with its own idiosyncrasies and quirks, perfectly exemplified by Bukele, right? So this narrative of, hey, look, this country has been taken over by a corrupt cabal of political and economic elites, and we need to wrestle power back and give it to the people, right? That is hashtag make El Salvador great again. This idea of, hey, the rule of law needs to be enforced, no matter the cost, no matter the human rights violations, right? This is not that different from law and order Republicans. And this third idea, uh, Bukele often says uh, in, in, in different ways, Bukele will often say, look, I don't care how big or, or virtues of an NGO you are. I don't care how big or virtues of a government you are. You have absolutely no right to tell me or my fellow Salvadorans how to, how to run our country. Our first and only responsibility is to ourselves. Right? This is El Salvador first. This is, this is America first. And so there is a very clear affinity between some of the underlying ideas that motivate the right wing of the Republican Party and the things that Bukele seems to believe in and push and tweet. The third part of this is that, as far as we can tell, there has been sort of an active strategy of Bukele's where he has invested quite a few resources into sort of creating networks and ties and relationships with the Republican Party, appearing on Tucker Carlson, for example, hiring lobbyists to, uh, to, to, to talk to uh, Republican lawmakers. So if you combine these three things, right, here is an extremely popular politician. We all kind of want to be him. Not only that, he seems to believe in a lot of the underlying things we believe in, and he's over here actually trying to talk to us and befriend us. It's sort of a match made in heaven when you think about it. Yeah, which is which is really concerning. And I think, you know, the, the United States obviously has been having some Democratic backsliding recently, in large part because of the Republican Party. And if you say, you know, that there's a, an ideological affinity, um, part of what there's an affinity with is, as you say, this sort of extreme law and order rhetoric that has led to really astonishing and egregious human rights violations um, that have led to a lot of condemnation. Um, from around the world. There's a lot of reporting about a sort of mega prison that the government is building or, or has built that, you know, would be incarcerating people in very close proximities and sometimes in extreme darkness. Can you talk a little bit more about the sort of human rights abuses that have taken place as part of Bukele's crackdown? Yeah. So under the state of emergency, Basically, what the state of emergency does is that it gives the government a blank check to arrest anyone, basically for any reason. And from the very beginning of the state of emergencies, since March of last year, there have been reports from both local and international organizations of many wrongful arrests. And it's very difficult to put a number on that, as we were mentioning earlier Basically, there's no data transparency here. So the number could be anywhere between 2,000 or so wrongful arrests all the way up to 20 or 25,000 wrongful arrests. In addition to these wrongful arrests, there are there is mounting evidence of violence inside of these prisons. Um, so the, the, the number of reports of people dying inside these prisons, apparently being murdered inside of these prisons, those keep going up. And, you know, just, just, just to 
point you to one of the few sort of data points we actually have in September of last year. So this was around the height of the state of emergency. This is when the this is when arrests were happening at a pretty breakneck speed. At that point, according to a survey, three in ten Salvadorans said they knew of someone that they knew someone who had been wrongfully arrested in the past three months. Uh, so when you think about that, that's pretty astounding, almost by any measure. And you know, those are major human rights violations. And the follow-up question is, okay, well, thousands of people have been wrongfully arrested. What is happening to those people and to people who you know, were gang members who have been arrested? What is happening to them inside of these prisons? So we know for a fact that these prisons are massively overcrowded. They, were, they already were overcrowded before Bukele went and arrested 70,000 people. We can only imagine because we can't, we're not allowed to actually see inside them, but we can only imagine that the conditions inside of these prisons must be extremely dire, truly dire. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, one of the things I've been puzzling over when it comes to Bukele's popularity is the amount of people who have potentially been wrongly arrested. You said three in 10 Salvadorians say they know someone who was wrongly arrested. And yet his his popularity ratings are sky high. I mean, they're in like that the high 80s, low 90s. So what explains that? Like, how, how does that math work? Do people approve of him even though they know people who have been wrongly really arrested? Do people who don't approve, are they just not answering in these these polls, what explains that? Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a big puzzle. That's a big question that, that we should we, we should all sort of look into. And you know, there, there's a couple of possible explanations or theories out there. I, I, one of them comes down to a different data point that shows up in these surveys, and it's the following: eighty-eight point two percent of Salvadorans. So almost nine in 10 Salvadorans say they currently feel very safe in the place where they live. This is up from about six in 10 Salvadorans before the state of exception. And of those eight to nine in 10 Salvadorans who say they feel safe or very safe, when you ask them, um, hey, why do you think you feel so safe? Like what happened? What changed? 95% of them tell you that it has something to do with Bukele's crackdown. And so when you put all of those data points together, I think the picture that emerges is it looks like many Salvadorans have kind of evaluated this trade-off between, hey, uh, there might be some wrongful arrests, there might be some human rights violations, but we get security and we get safety. And it sounds like when presented with that trade-off, a majority of Salvadorans have said, yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it and, and, and we'll like it. And you know, that's has, that has all sorts of implications, um, certainly for democracy and for human rights. But as, as far as I can tell, again, and acknowledging that our access to data and information is really limited, but as far as I can tell, based on these sort of surveys, that seems to be what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important and really troubling. And I mean, it's worth underlining, you know, it's not just, or my understanding is that it's not just, you know, Salvadorians who might have approved of, of Bukele ahead of time. 
who who feel this way. El Faro, which is a publication that has really harshly criticized Bukele, has been uh, targeted by Bukele in numerous ways, published a long article saying that Bukele dismantled the gang presence in El Salvador and doing a lot of reporting to to that effect. And I mean, I I will say I have struggled with this because as, you know, someone who is in favor of democracy and human rights, um, seeing that someone can, you know, actually make people accept the trade-off between liberty and security and say, yes, I want security, and that it seems to have actually worked is like profoundly troubling on not only on a human rights, but on kind of a, an intellectual level for, for what it means for El Salvador, for what it means for democracy generally. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, one thing to keep in mind, and, and we sort of point this out in the piece, is that this, this, this isn't really a new story. Right? There are plenty of examples, certainly in Latin America, of moments when a country faces some sort of crisis, usually some sort of security crisis, and you know people appear more than willing to kind of give up uh, th- their democratic institutions, in some cases their human rights, they appear willing to give up those things so that this crisis can be addressed effectively. And sort of I think the, the, the clearest example of this is, is Peru in, in, in the 1990s, which, you know, happy to talk about and get into, but this is not unprecedented, right? This is sort of a, uh, this is sort of a, for lack of a better term, a, a bug with democracy that we, that we sort of know about and that we've seen before. When, when security is at stake, when crisis is happening, people, maybe understandably, people seem, uh, at least in some cases, willing to kind of put those democratic institutions, put those checks and balances, put those human rights in the back burner and say, please go take care of this, make it safe again. Now, the problem with this is, yeah, I mean, that tends to be popular in the short run. That in some cases helps governments deal with crisis. But once you've thrown out your democratic institutions, once you've gone away with your checks and balances, those things are very hard to get back. And so the crisis might pass and the enemy might be defeated and the smoke clears and you look around and you no longer have a crisis, but you also no longer have a democracy. And at that point, people might change the way they feel. Yeah, I definitely want to go back to the Peru comparison because I, I think it's really striking and thought provoking. But before we get there, I mean, so let's let's talk about why you think that at least in the short term, this crackdown has worked when others haven't. And then we can go on to discuss why it is that might that might break down. Sure. So as, as we mentioned earlier, Latin America is a region that, especially over the past 20 or 30 years, has seen a lot of organized crime. And with that have come a lot of exercises in really tough anti-crime policies. Uh, the sort of shorthand for these policies in the region is mano dura, which literally means uh, stronger, heavy hand. Now, what the region history teaches us is that these criminal crackdowns, they almost always fail. And in many cases, they actually backfire. And, you know, this, this, ha- this can happen for a number of reasons, and, and no two cases are exactly the same. But the story that most clearly applies to the Salvadoran case, or I should say should have applied to the Salvadoran case, is that when, you, when the state cracks down on criminal groups, when it declares all-out war on criminal groups, like Bukele did, it creates really powerful incentives for these criminal groups to fight back. To fight back not only to protect themselves and their members and their assets, but also to sort of turn the heat up on the government and the state to take a step back and go, whoa, okay, okay. And not only that, it sometimes actually motivates criminal groups to do things like recruit more members, diversify their sources of income, gain more income, even form alliances. And you put all that together and basically what sometimes happens when you crack down on these criminal groups is they become more violent, and they also become strong. 
that is, if you had asked uh, any number of political scientists, any number of people who study organized crime in Latin America, if on the day before the state of exception was declared, declared on the day before Bukele declares war on these groups, if you had asked any number of political scientists, hey, how do you think this is going to play out? That's the story they probably would have told you. Oh, the criminal groups are going to fight back quite violently. They might even end up becoming stronger. And eventually the government is probably going to have to make a U-turn and criminal groups are going to fight to see another day. That is sort of how this should have played out. It isn't how it played out. Yeah, and so why not? What did Bukele do differently? So I, I should start by saying that there are, you know, there are several theories about this. What, what I argue in this piece is that the key to understanding what's different here has really nothing to do with the crackdown itself. It has to do with what happens before the crackdown, which is a covert non-aggression pact between the Bukele government and the three major criminal groups. So we know both from really great, really brave investigative reporting, uh, but also by some indictments that have been handed out in the US actually, we know that as early as 2019, when he's he's first elected, Bukele begins to negotiate with these criminal groups. And the way these negotiations happen, by the way, which ends up being really important, uh, these negotiations happen behind bars. Uh, a, A sort of interesting quirk of El Salvador's criminal groups is that its leaders have long operated from behind bars. Uh, so, so even from behind bars, they've sort of been able to kind of control what happens on the outside. But anyway, from at least the moment he's elected, if not earlier, um, Bukele or Bukele's representatives basically begin to negotiate a pact with the leaders of these three criminal organizations. And the general idea of the pact, as far as you can tell, is look, the government says, hey, we, we need to keep violence down. Violence is not good for us politically, and violence is you know, not good in general. So, you know, stop using it. Stop, stop killing people. Stop, uh, quote unquote, disappearing people. And in exchange, the government, among other things, basically also agrees to kind of hold back on its use of violence. Right. So we're not gonna we're not gonna go hunt down gang members. But it also agrees to a number of concessions that are especially good for gang members and gang leaders who are in prison. Right? So everything from relaxing security conditions in prison uh, to, in some cases, actually letting gang leaders uh, leave prison uh, well before their, their sentences were completed. So between 2019, when Bukele becomes president, and really until everything kind of implodes in March of last year, this was really the centerpiece of Bukele's security policy. Bukele's government negotiated a non-aggression pact, uh, a non-violence pact, with the leaders of these three gangs. Now, to understand how that then shapes the way the crackdown plays out, it's important to understand two things about uh, how this pact worked and what it did to the criminal groups. So the first is that it trained the criminal groups to think as follows. As long as we, the criminal groups, don't use any violence, the government is not going to come after us. And if we do use violence, the government is going to come after us briefly But as long as we sort of hold back, we don't fight back, we don't shoot back, the smoke is going to clear and we can go back to the negotiating table. Now this happened a couple of times. So for example, in April of 2020, these criminal groups suddenly went on this violent killing spree. They killed about 80 people over a couple of days. Back then, Bukele sort of came out and said, We are going to end these criminal groups. We're going to pursue them with everything we have. Uh, Conducted some arrests, but then a few days later, everything was back to normal. The pact was back in place. 
This happened again in November of 2021. These criminal groups suddenly went out and they killed upwards of 40 people in the space of a couple of days. Bukele comes out and he says, we are going to end these criminal groups. We're going to come after them with everything we have. He conducts some mass arrests. He puts this cruise on some of the some of the gang members who are in prison. But then a couple of days later, the smoke clears, everything is back to normal. The pact is back in place. So this pact really taught these criminal groups that that's how this worked. In March of 2022, when the criminal groups once again went on this violent killing spree, they had every reason to believe that history would repeat itself. And sure enough, Bukele came out again for the third time and said, hey, we are going to end these criminal groups. We're going to come after them with everything we find. But the criminal groups had been taught by this process of the PAG. They had been taught that, hey, this is exactly the way the government reacts. We just need to hold tight for a couple of days and then everything will be back to normal. Of course, this time was different. But by the time the criminal groups are able to realize, hey, government isn't backing down this time. It's been a week. It's been two weeks. They're arresting us by the thousands. By that point, it's too late for these criminal groups to really respond, to really wage a war, to really defend themselves. So that's the first thing that the PAC does. The second thing the PAC does is that it drives a wedge between the criminal leaders and what you might call the rank and file. So if you think about the way the pact was set up, the big benefits of the pact were really going to these gang leaders. So here we're talking primarily about, you know, prison conditions were better, little things like visitation rights, little things like, do I now have access to cell phones? But also big things like, hey, I might be able to, uh, to, to leave prison 20 or 30 years early. So the pact in that sense is really good for criminal, criminal leaders, but it's the rank and file who actually have to pay the price, right? The rank and file are in a straitjacket. They're not allowed to go about their, their, their normal business. They're not allowed to use violence to settle scores. They're not allowed to use violence to extract rents. They're not allowed to use violence to establish their authority. They're paying a pretty high price for benefits that seem to be going mostly to their leadership. This presents a problem for these leaders, right? How do you enforce a pact that benefits you at the expense of your rank and file? And how do you enforce it from behind bars? Right? That's no easy task. The evidence suggests that what these leaders did is that they made moves to centralize as much power as possible over the criminal groups in their own hands. So they either removed or refused to appoint sort of surrogates, surrogates or second, seconds in command. And a very small number of gang leaders, um, probably a handful, suddenly accumulated pretty much a complete sort of organizational power over these criminal groups. This becomes crucial once the Salvadoran state decides to fully crack down on the gangs in March. Because remember, these gang leaders are imprisoned. And so it's suddenly very easy for the government, as soon as the crackdown starts, to cut off the leaders from the rest of the gang. And because the leaders had opted not to appoint any surrogates, not to appoint anyone who could fill that vacuum, suddenly the gangs were at war and headless. Right? A lot of the things that you would do if you're a criminal organization to respond to a crackdown, they require leadership, they require organization. Right? Coming up with strategies, coordinating with gang members and gang cliques that are in other regions, uh, increasing your income, forming alliances, all of these things require leadership. And because of what the pact had done to the leaders of the gangs, because of what the pact had done to sort of the organizational chart of the gangs, suddenly they were leaderless. There was no one who could kind of do this job of essentially serving as a wartime commander or a wartime leader. 
And this gave the Salvadoran government a decisive upper hand. So if you put all of that together, my explanation for why this crackdown seems to have succeeded when so many like it backfire, the explanation seems to be it seems to be in this pattern. So so far this has been quite successful. At the same time, you know, you you indicated that there are plenty of reasons to be skeptical that it will hold in the long term. And we've talked about that at a high level, but are there any particular things that you'll be keeping your eye on uh, to, to see if this is all going to fall apart? Yeah, for sure. So there, there, there's a couple of things that I think it's important to keep an eye on. One concern is, you know, criminal organizations, they never emerge in a vacuum. So in the Salvadoran case, there were a number of conditions that motivated and enabled young people to join these criminal organizations, right? Lack of opportunities, poverty, a lack of protection, a lack of security. One concern is that those underlying conditions haven't really changed. And so it seems possible that this is still a context in which criminal groups maybe the same criminal groups, maybe different criminal groups could emerge or re-emerge. Now, if that begins to happen, it's likely that what, the way we would know this, the sort of, the sort of, the sort of signs of this would uh, be spurts of violence. So, so right now, if, if you believe the, the Salvadoran authorities, the daily homicide rate is anywhere between zero and one. If we suddenly start to see days where that spikes a little bit, days with four or five homicides, that could be a sign of, hey, there's there's something happening in sort of El Salvador's criminal landscape. Someone appears to be shooting here. Someone appears to be organizing. So that's one concern. Another concern that some people have put forward is has to do with new groups moving in. And so in particular, you know, the, the region's big drug cartels, and I'm thinking here primarily of Mexican cartels, they've always been conspicuously absent from El Salvador, even as they, even as they sort of stretched, stretched into, uh, into Guatemala and, and Honduras right next door. Now, it's kind of the conventional wisdom among people who, people who study this case has always been that, you know, the gangs had a, basically a monopoly over El Salvador. Uh, but the cartels didn't really see them as uh, as reliable business partners. And so if cartels had a choice between sort of uh, getting into business with these gangs or conquering these gangs so that they can set up shop in El Salvador, cartels basically just decided to go set up shop elsewhere. There are some concerns, particularly among kind of international observers and, and diplomatic corps, that this is now an opportunity. You know, if, if the gangs truly have been wiped off the map, this is now an opportunity for cartels and from other criminal organizations in the region to start moving in. So that's a second concern. That's something to keep in mind. The third thing is, you know, if, if it is true, and it appears to be true, that there have been thousands of, of unlawful arrests, what is going to happen if and when these thousands of people who were all arrested at around the same time, what is going to happen when they come back into society? That is not too different a scenario from the 1990s when suddenly El Salvador had this huge influx of, uh, of young men who were coming back from wartime exile. Right? And there was there really wasn't much for them to do. There really wasn't there really weren't many places for them to go. And so criminal groups and criminal enterprises presented one option. So is it possible that whenever we start to see kind of a massive flow of people leaving prison, is it possible that the Salvadoran government is going to have a similar situation in its hands? That's another thing to keep in mind. So I want to close by turning back to Peru, which you mentioned earlier, that 
what happened in Peru in the 1990s and then uh, over the course of, of the last two decades is sort of a cautionary tale uh, for what might happen uh, to El Salvador under Bukele and, and after Bukele. And I found this particularly striking because Peru is currently in the midst of a protracted political crisis. They've had five presidents in the last seven years. Uh, the current president's weathering a, a serious legitimacy crisis after directing the military and police to violently attack protesters after the last president was impeached. It's not stable by any means. Walk me through that comparison a little bit and how you kind of see in what happened in Peru uh, a possible dark future for El Salvador. Right. Yeah. So again, you know, no country is like any other country. But I do think there are some truly striking parallels uh, between these two cases. So Alberto Fujimori, much like Bukele, was a president who was elected on an anti-establishment populist platform, uh, vowing to do away with sort of this decrepit establishment to address many of the issues that frustrated Peruvians. And much like Bukele, he, he comes into power, he comes into office, and he's hit with a pretty significant security crisis. In the Peruvian case, this was really a guerrilla insurgency. A Maoist guerrilla known as the Sendero Luminoso was uh, starting to wage a really pretty brutal and, and scary war in Peru. And Fujimori turns around and he shuts down Congress. He shuts down the court. He essentially concentrates as much power as possible under the presidency, in part under the guise of, listen, we have a security crisis. This is getting out of hand. I am the president and I need to do whatever I have to do to keep Peruvians safe. All of that has some striking parallels to, 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 to Bukele's situation in El Salvador. Here's another striking parallel. Most Peruvians supported this. Fujimori's sort of power grab in order to fight the security crisis was extremely popular. They got him reelected, even as evidence of widespread human rights abuses began to mount. A vast majority of Peruvians continued to support him. And again, that is very much analogous to what's happening in El Salvador. Now, what happens in Peru is before long, after a couple of years, Fujimori really, for all intents and purposes, has more or less defeated this, these guerrillas. The insurgency is clearly not going to succeed. Uh, safety is, for the most part, restored. But Fujimori is still around. And not only that, Fujimori has really been able to completely undermine all checks and balances. He has an iron grip on the state. He gets himself reelected for a second time. So he gets a third term. And he ends up staying in power until 2000 when he's, when he's forced to resign in the middle, in the middle of, a, of a corruption scam. Now, one concern is that something similar might end up happening in this case, right? So it's possible that Bukele seems to have defeated the gangs by concentrating power, by getting rid of checks and balances, by walking over human rights. It's possible that these fears that, you know, it's crime coming back, it's possible that those that's not going to happen. But El Salvador now finds itself in a situation where it no longer has democratic institutions. It no longer has uh, checks and balances that can hold the presidency accountable. Bukele is running for re-election in 2024. He will almost certainly win that election simply because of his popularity rating. He can play completely fair and still win that election. I don't know that he will play completely fair, but he could play completely fair and still win that election. The question then is what happens next? You know, you still have a president much like Fujimori in Peru who is extremely powerful. Security crisis is long gone. The power is still there. 
you know, you could, it's very easy to imagine a scenario where Bukele stays in power, not only for a second term, but also a third term, which would put his, his tenure at about 15 years. And if, if Peru is in the indication, what's likely, what we're likely to see is uh, widespread corruption. Right at the time Fujimori steps down, he, he sort of famously made Forbes' list of the 10 most corrupt leaders of, of all time. Now, I will say it's now been uh, over 20 years since Fujimori stepped down. I don't think it's fair or accurate to, uh, to see in Fujimori the root of Peru's current problems. I do think it's a factor, right? I, I, I do think, you know, reasonable, very well-informed people might disagree with this. I would argue that Peruvian institutions, even now, they never fully recovered from, from, from the Fujimori experience. So, so again, I think if, there, if there's a lesson to gain from Peru, it's that democratic institutions are very easy to throw away when there's a crisis, but then they're very, very difficult to get back once that crisis is passed. Let's leave it there. Manuel, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pache Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.